Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. In this podcast, we'll hear a panel discussion from the Festival of Place between Emma Warren, author of Make Some Space, Tuning into Total Refreshment Center, Danny Keir, Global Head of Business Development of Sound Diplomacy, Clarice Tavin from Major Programs and Projects, City of London Corporation, Akil Scaife-Smith, founder of Resolve Collective, and Mark Davey, CEO of Future City. They'll be talking about how we preserve, enhance, foster, and curate culture in the city. What kind of infrastructure is needed? How do we value culture? Can it be created? From music to food, we explore the ways in which culture contributes to place and how to help creative industries to nest and grow. Hello and welcome. My name is Emma Warren and I'm kind of wearing two hats for this session. I'll be introducing our panel and I'll be doing a short Q&A afterwards um, just to kind of recap on what we've discussed and the knowledge that we have and hopefully there'll be a chance for maybe one or two questions afterwards. So I'd just like to welcome our esteemed panelists who know all about creating space in which culture may have a better chance of thriving. So please welcome Danny Keir from Sound Diplomacy, Clarice Taven from City of London, Akil Scaife-Smith from Resolve Collective, and Mark Davey from Future City. Welcome. Okay then, so this is my bit where I'm gonna tell you a bit about me and what I know about making space. So I'm not really part of your community of developers and architects. Um, so this is the first time I'm speaking to people like yourselves. So it might be that the things I'm saying or the way that I'm saying it is not necessarily how people within your community would speak about things. So hopefully uh, my perspective will be useful and interesting for you, but my language and my thinking is, is maybe different from yours. So I wrote about a venue called Total Refreshment Centre in this book, Make Some Space, which I published myself earlier this year. I printed a thousand copies, paid for it on my credit cards, had them stacked up on the steps in my flat, and I've uh, sold nearly all of them. I've sent copies all around the world, and I'm having a really interesting response from readers uh, because I think I've surfaced something that all of us that are involved in culture know, which is that these informal, often quite grassroots places in which culture happens are necessary for culture, but they also allow us to come alive as well. Um, it is about this venue, Total Refreshment Centre, which was a kind of ad hoc under the radar venue in North London, which operated on the fringes of legitimacy for six years. But really, it's a proxy for all these places and all these um, locations in which we can gather. And really, what I'm trying to do is advocate for space, to remember that we're a biological species, we need places to gather, there are hardly any of these left, and that we need to learn how to value and advocate for culture and also for places in which we can make culture happen. Um, these two photographs are taken from the very first day that the person that ran Total Refreshment Centre walked into the building. This is an old, um, old Edwardian warehouse on the fringe of Stoke Newington and Dalston. And he'd been looking for a place in which to do stuff, bring his friends together to jam, show films, hang out, make culture happen. Uh, and he saw an advert on Gumtree for a space with some very blurry photographs which said, Wood Suit Music School. He happened to recognize the place, went to go and see it with his friends, and knew immediately that he could do something in here. 
This place also tells us something about why it's valuable to have um, permanent spaces or spaces in which culture happens repeatedly because there are some clues in here that tell you about its past. Um, the clues are in the color scheme. So for 20 years before it was taken over by Total Refreshment Center, it operated as a Caribbean social club. But it wasn't just a Caribbean social club. This was a, a culture and a history that wasn't archived. And as we know, if things aren't archived, they didn't exist. But what happened in there was, yes, rehearsal rooms and recording spaces for local musicians, very important people in the histories of British reggae, Black Slate, African Head Charge were um, at Mellow Mix, which was the name of the place there. Also a place, a stop-off point for visiting kind of legendary musical royalty, really important musicians from Jamaica and Trinidad and Grenada came through and came to, to, came to Mellow Mix, as it was then. But it wasn't just a music thing. They ran grassroots theater, they ran beauty pageants. They allowed the community to kind of come in and out, so there was no difference between who was inside the building and who was on the street outside. And I think that's always a good sign of a place that's integrated. If you take the history back further, it has an industrial past, but right at the very beginning of it, it was a chocolate factory. And you can't get to chocolate without getting to sugar, and you can't get to sugar without getting to histories of colonialism and diaspora. And I think it's useful for all of us in this country and in this city to understand that if you scrape the surface of most of our buildings, you're gonna to get to those histories. And the better we know that, the better placed we are to build the new narratives that we need so badly around these subjects. But Total Refreshment Centre became a nexus for a new generation of London musicians um, who are being described as the new South London jazz musicians, musicians who are now selling out venues, are, being, are touring worldwide, um, are appearing on the front cover of publications in this country and internationally, and are kind of poised to create a new wave of British music culture, which is of value culturally and economically. But before I did the next slide, I, I thought, Maybe I'll try and explain to these people to try and quantify the value of this place. I'm not really into accountancy in this way, but maybe I'll try and do it. So I have tried to quantify why this place was valuable. But before I do that, I would ask you, would you require the same kind of accounting of culture that you believe to be intrinsically valuable, like ballet or opera? I wonder. Maybe it's because ballet and opera was generated kind of from the courts and from high culture rather than the culture I'm talking about, which is generated more from working class and diaspora histories. So there's a list of some of the ways in which the Total Refreshment Center generated culture. The saxophonist on the right is called Nabaya Garcia, and she's one of the people who is being booked internationally, is gracing front covers of music papers, and, and not even just music papers, internationally. So I suppose the question really is about making space. And even making space seems like a big ask, doesn't it? I know that for you lot, I understand a little bit more than I did before about the pressures that maybe you're operating under and that perhaps developers behave logically given the systems and policies and procedures you have around you. But I would ask, of course, to make space, but I don't know if making space itself is really enough. I think what we can do, though, is to advocate for the culture and advocate for space as it is required by we, the experts who make culture. I went through my book and I found three examples of people who are expert in their field who had something to say about this. This musician, Kieran Hebden, you may or may not know his music, but he sells out Alexandra Palace. Um, he is at the forefront of his field, an extremely talented musician who millions of people in this country and internationally like and respect and, and buy the music of. 
And he makes a good point about the difficulty of relocation. Say, for example, if you worked in um, gardening or agriculture, you would know that it's rather difficult to transplant species from A to B. The species require the soil or the temperament in a location, and to, it's not just as easy as transplantation. And the same really goes for culture, because what is culture but like a human nature? It's built on the leaf litter of our lived experiences. Um, and anyway, Kieran had an interesting thing to say about that. This point about being welcome, Oscar Jerome, again, is one of these like new South London jazz musicians. He wrote a, a song called Abusi Junction, which came out about a year ago. It's got tens of millions of views on the streaming services. You know, millions of people around the world have heard his music and are going to see them. It's with one of the bands he's in called Kokoroko. So if you want to hear one of the most beautiful pieces of music you're going to hear, I would suggest you hear Abusi Junction. But he makes the point about, about being made welcome. And I think when you're thinking about making space, you know, you need to ask yourselves who's being made welcome, who isn't, who is shying away from your environment. And when you walk into a place, what are your assumptions about your role? Are you a citizen or are you a consumer? And I think at Total Refreshment Center, my experience of accidentally ending up there was I was welcomed absolutely as a citizen. And in, in many other venues, I'm welcomed as a consumer. This thing here about unfinished spaces. Uh, the only woman who, well, she's in her mid-20s. The woman who I'm quoting here is called Marina Blake, and she started Brainchild Festival when she was 19 with her friends. It's happening next weekend. She's a really interesting person. She understands your world, and she understands actually that there's a lack of um, connection between your world and her world, our world, us of culture makers. And I think she has this thing that she says about unfinished spaces. It causes me to think, if I walk into the South Bank Centre, for example, the Barbican, this is a finished space. I'm there as a consumer. And I, may, I, may be, I may be welcome, but I can't add anything to it. Whereas when I walked into Total Refreshment Centre, I was aware that it was a place that I could contribute something. I've actually contributed accidentally as a documenter and archivist of its histories. So I'm, I'm contributing in that way. But other people could come in and say, oh, I want to run a yoga class, or I want to do a screening, or I'm in a band, but we have no audiences and no money, and we don't know how to do this. Can we play? And the answer would almost unilaterally be yes. So this sense of unfinishedness, I think, is, is really important. So I've, <laughs> my next two slides are the final ones. I've kind of, I talked to a few people who are from my world, and I thought, I said, what would you want the people I'm coming to talk to, what would you want them to know? What would be your asks? So <laughs> these are our asks. Um, and I would ask you to do it strong. You know, youth clubs and community centers are really powerful. Grime, for example, many of you will have seen that Stormzy headlined Glastonbury last weekend. Grime wouldn't, happened, wouldn't have happened without youth clubs. Dizzy Rascal's very first performance, even before he was an MC, was as a DJ, DJ Dizzy D, at his local youth club. So we need these places in which you can just go and do a thing with your friends, and it may become kind of world-beating culture like grime, or it might just be a thing that you did once. We were just all asked to remember a childhood memory, a childhood memory in which we did a thing with our friends, in which there was space for us to do that, is important personally, but it's also important culturally. And this thing about leaving people alone, it sounds a bit harsh, but I believe that we are the experts in our part of it, and you must trust us to know what we're doing, even if it makes you uncomfortable, we have to accept that you're the experts when it comes to design and the build and the equations that are required to build safe buildings. We may have some qualms about this, but we know you've done the training. And so even though we, the culture makers, may not have a kind of official MA or qualification in it, 
You have to trust that we know what we're doing. And then the final thing is um, this thing about building meaningful relationships. This was an idea from Marina Blake from Brainchild. And actually, I think this is a really good point. Why can't people like yourselves create these roles, relationship managers who understand the people from my world, who understand your world and can mediate between these two environments? I heard recently that the, um, the folk society in the 60s and 70s had regional managers all around the country. So if you wanted to put on like a folk dance of some kind, you could go and see them and they would help you find like a call of your dance or they would help you with insurance. And you have to ask the question, what would grassroots DIY culture look like if there were some regional managers, relationship managers, who could help us get access to spaces and to, to kind of do things properly? So really, I'm just asking for you guys to do what you can. It may be that you can't do very much, but the, the small things you can do are going to be valuable. Uh, and that's it, really. So thank you. And on to our next speaker. Hello. Is that on? Yeah, I can hear myself. Good. Um, I don't think my slides made it. No. Um, which is a shame because they were beautiful and very quite kind of um, compelling. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to kind of meander through a little explanation on why I'm here and what uh, Sound Diplomacy, the company I work for, do and why that's relevant. Um, so I'm kind of like the token music guy in this situation, I guess, because I come from managing, uh, for the past 15 years I've managed musicians, um, some successfully, most not successfully, um, and I blame most of the lack of success around those artists down to the spaces and the accessibility for them to actually develop their talents and performance skills, build an audience, and actually develop a sustainable, resilient business for themselves. Um, so I guess fast track a little bit. Sound Diplomacy was founded by a Canadian guy who was doing a lot of work for musicians coming into Europe. So he was kind of cultivating pathways for them to access the industry and access opportunities for them to, you know, from the very generous Canadian taxpayers' um, investment into the arts, find ways to distribute that kind of and celebrate that culture. And he was doing a great job, but I started helping him when some of my artists were between album cycles. And um, we kind of then recognized that most of the issues around this was down to the grassroots music infrastructure being pressured by the external environment of real estate property. Um, so one of the early pieces of work we did as Sound Diplomacy is, as a kind of research piece was for the Mayor of London with, um, alongside a great charity called the Music Venues Trust. And we recognized that most grassroots music venues were closed down due to those quite practical issues around the sound that they were giving, the reputation they had, and the businesses around them being deemed kind of unviable. So we kind of set about dispelling that kind of myth around why, where the value was placed around these places. Um, and forgive me, I was meant to have some, you know, kind of visual stimulants, so I'm kind of going off here. But, but basically, so we, we kind of set about kind of kind of reevaluating the space and trying to configure how we could develop the language to communicate the value of these grassroots music platforms for 
talent development. And we recognized quite quickly that the language we used as a music industry wasn't necessarily kind of transferable into the built environment. So we were recognizing and that the tech sector was doing it quite well, so we needed to lend and, and borrow influence from them and start to think about grassroots as talent incubation in terms of creating IP and creating businesses. So fast forward a little bit, what we've been doing as a, as a company is to evaluate what we deem the ecosystem of a place based around its music assets, its demographic profiles, and thinking about music as its impact on everything else. Why do people travel to music venues? How do music venues establish communities and why are they, how are they the linchpin for those creative communities and what are the kind of, we've, there's plenty anecdotal evidence around how the kind of more pronounced music cities in the world, Austin and Nashville, places like that, have become music capitals but also now they are the fastest growing cities in the US, they harbour the kind of tech developments, they harbour the fastest growing healthcare and, and, and insurance industries. Why is that? The kind of the, the idea that industry and people gravitate to places that have the excellence of culture, they set the benchmarks for how talent is incubated and, and is harbored, but also how you kind of recognize the influence of that from its rippling effect through the different businesses and how you can create the, and cultivate the pathways for that talent within a city. So we started to do a lot of research around this. Um, kind of five years on, we've developed a piece of technology which helps us to do that. So we developed this idea of kind of mapping out music in, a, in an environment to measure the standard of its creative output. We've acknowledged the fact that music is almost like the Trojan horse for contemporary culture. It's not the only thing that's important, but it certainly triggers influence across every, everything else. So how do we recognize and support that moving forward? Going into how we make place and how we understand music's role in that, we need to look at what the kind of the, 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 the workforce demographics are doing to engage with space and how we can actually attract them into space and how we can use that as a tool to make places better, healthier and, and, and more sustainable. So music is actually the key indicator for the, um, the spend for the workforce these days. So they spend £420 million a month on live events. That's around 64% of, of their income on events. So when we look at this and how we can start to activate spaces and recognize how we can make spaces better, we need to start measuring by actually what kind of music outlets we have and how we can support and help that grow. So kind of once we've done the research and once we've acknowledged where the kind of pressure points are, we can start to build in strategies which acknowledge how to actually sustain that community offer. We look at what the stakeholders are doing and we look at what the kind of global standards are for doing that. And then we set about practically embedding in music so that we can recognize the, the negative effects it can have around sound and around kind of getting people to places. But we can actually also look at how the benefits of wellness and benefits of business can be built within that. So moving forward into kind of how we 
operate in terms of the delivery, we start to really kind of enable the music communities almost like a, a Rosetta Stone of, of kind of translating the value into the built environment. So we can start to evolve the language and actually translate back into the music industry what the opportunities are to develop spaces. And as I said, the, the idea of actually understanding its value across transport and across education and all of these other parts is how we start to really show value and show kind of social impact and, and think forward into the future. Um, I'm going to be missing lots out from my, from my slides, but I guess it's about acknowledging that kind of changing nature of demand and understanding that spaces aren't necessarily, um, in, in a traditional way, shouldn't be as restrictive in terms of how they look at this stuff. It's how we can recognize music can be inbuilt into this as a kind of as not only an attraction, but as a way we can harbour those communities and recognise how to create the engagement that people are looking for. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm not going to keep talking. There's a few more to come, but we basically go through these measures. We, t we work with different cities around the world. We work in New Orleans, San Francisco, we work for the Mayor of London, and we also work a lot with a lot of developer clients recognising what the opportunity is for them to embed music into a new development whilst recognizing how it can help deliver solutions for placemaking or occupation and how we can actually look at the dynamics that music can add if it's built in and not bolted on. Historically, going back to my first remarks around music venues closing, we found that if you, wherever places are planned, the music is always the last thing that's shoehorned in to make people come and make it attractive. But fundamentally, that's been a backward way of thinking. As a company, we're trying to educate and develop the, the understanding and opportunity for music to be built in from the master planning phases so that it can support and, and it can sustain the greater offer and branding of a place. Um, so I'll leave it there anyway. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I'm very happy to be here today. So I'm Clarice Tavin, and I'm from the City of London Public Realm team. So what do we do? We look at the space between the buildings, and we deliver projects and strategies to make sure the square mile remains a healthy and attractive place to live, work, and play. So the city is known as a financial and business center with very old traditions and hyper-modern buildings. But the city is much more than that. And we recently commissioned a research into creativity, enterprise, and innovation, which revealed very interesting findings. Did you know, for example, that the creative sector is growing faster in the city than anywhere else in the UK? The city has recently initiated a new initiative called Culture Mile, a major transformation to place culture at its heart, empowering the city to reinvent itself for the next century. Culture Mile is a new cultural district developed in partnership with the Barbican Centre, the Museum of London, the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, and the London Symphony Orchestra. In working together, we want to build a place that celebrates culture as well as support the creative industry behind it. So it's not only about consuming culture, but it's also about education and production of culture. 
that appeals to everyone, businesses, residents, workers, and visitors alike. Located in the northwest corner of the city, Culture Mile is one, of the, one mile long, stretching from Farringdon to Moorgate, and it's at the border with Islington, so it's a blue blob you can see here on this, on this plan. And this area is going through major changes. Crossrail will open new stations in Moorgate and Farringdon and Farringdon East that will bring 150,000 visitors per day, and that will be 45 minutes away from three major London airports. The Museum of London is moving to a derelict building in the west end of Smithfield Market, a project developed by architects Tantan William and Afsif Khan. A new center for music is designed by Dillers and Scofidio and Renfro and is proposed at the current site of the museum. And the city recently announced the relocation of Smithfield Central Market, the largest wholesale meat market in the UK, in a new consolidated site. So how do we coordinate this major change in the public realm? At the center of the process are the streets that connect old and future institutions together. And to ensure we develop a holistic vision, we develop the look and feel strategy in partnership with fluid architecture. The strategy put culture at the heart of the design process in terms of wayfinding and signage, green spaces, lighting, public information, and art installations. So this way, the street becomes a stage of the urban life. But there is no one solution to transform this complex area. So we tested various ideas through temporary experiments to fully understand how culture can be grained into every aspect of the built environment. So let's look at some of these experiments. Culture Mile is a very challenging environment. This is Beach Street, that you may know. It's a very busy, traffic-dominated and polluted street that needs to be transformed to maximize its uses. But how do we do that? So in March 2018, for the Open Space Festival, we worked with the Barbican and 59 Production to deliver two days free lighting and sound installation. So this revealed that this space, as many others in the city and elsewhere, could be used totally differently if there were no cars. And I encourage you to look at our new city transport strategy. We will talk about reducing vehicle traffic in, in the city. And to continue questioning this challenging space, we then worked with Jason Bruce Studio, who delivered the Brutalist Tapestry, so still in Beach Street Tunnel. It's an installation that is inspired by the concrete finish of the Barbican. And it creates abstract pattern based on data collected from the culture mine institutions. And we want to continue doing experiment in Beach Street to shape its future, to better understand its constraints and its opportunities, and to make it a much better place. Not far from Bridge Street, in Smithfield, sits a hidden gem, the Smithfield Rotonda Garden. In 2017, we worked with the artist Morag Mayarescu to enhance the visibility of the garden during the summer. And she created a temporary stage and seating that was used for numerous activities and workshops, bringing a new colorful in life in the garden. What is also very important for us is the legacy of our project. For the Rotunda project, for example, we, the design was developed through workshops organized with local school. So at the end of the experiment, we relocated these vibrant shapes and colorful shapes in a local school to continue its life. 
And this summer, we commissioned the Landscape Art and Architecture Practice Wayward to design a temporary structure in Smithfield Market. So they were inspired by the stories of Victorian plant explorers, and they built a greenhouse. It acts as a hub for free public events and creative workshops throughout the summer. So please go to one of the plant adoption events to realize that green initiatives are now fully recognized as cultural activities. Culture Mile is also the place um, with the highest number of blue plaques in the country. So how do we talk about this rich history? Last summer, we organized a three-day street party for the 150th Smithfield market anniversary. And it was inspired by the original Bartholomew Fair, a close fair that began at Smithfield in the 12th century. So through free activities for families, including a sausage dog parade, we celebrate the incredible history of this place, along with market traders and local communities. As part of the event, we worked with three poets who have a deep and unique relationship with the area. And we captured that thoughts, and we kept record of this material, this, this immaterial heritage through their poems and a film that was unproduced. So following the success of this event last summer, Culture Mile developed another program for 2019 called Play the Mile. And it takes over 100 days from the 18th of May, concluding on the 25th of August with another street party in Smithfield. Play the Mile explores the value of play and creativity in everyday life. And it proposes two new outdoor installations accessible to everyone, 25 unique indoor venue and outdoor spaces to discover and explore, 50 free regular performances and activities to enjoy at lunchtime, after work and at the weekend. And all the information is available on the Culture Mile website. But we also wondered how music and sounds transform outdoor spaces. So this summer, Culture Mile commissioned two new sound installations. The first one, Pleasure Garden, is located in the Salter's Garden. And the music responds to your movement with different layers of the composition being triggered by your presence. The second installation was developed by, with Musicity and they work with Arab, who realized 3D scans of several spaces, and they then commissioned musicians to compose original tracks in response to these spaces. So all these experiments are very diverse, and they are part of an iterative process, and it is key for us to learn about the spaces and the community that use them. So we therefore put in place a robust program to monitor and evaluate each experiment so we can inform the future permanent projects there. And this will give us recommendations about infrastructure that could be then installed to support future artistic installations and activities there. So to conclude, it has been a fantastic journey so far, and we are learning about how to transform our spaces, and we are developing strong relationships with our cultural partners, with the property sector, and with local communities and visitors. But it's still the beginning of a long-term plan to transform the area and maximize its potential as a hub of creativity, learning, and innovation. So I believe this is a once-in-a-lifetime once opportunity to continue transforming the city and make sure it's ready for the next century. Thank you.
cool. Um, sorry. Before I start, um, I do want to quickly say that um, Emma Warren's book, Make Some Space, is one of the most important books published in the last five years. I've got my copy in my bag, and I'm going to ask her to sign it for me as soon as I'm done with this. Um, it really does capture a culture that, and give the voice to a culture that in, uh, in, in no other, it has not been given any other space. Like the artists that she's talked about, like Nubai Garcia, like Joe Armand Jones, um, and, and Nancy from Steam Down. Like th this, is a, this is a huge movement that's going on right now. And what Emma Warren's book has done is unparalleled. I've, I've certainly never read anything like it. So, you know, get your copy. Anyway, um, so I, um, on the way here actually, I was, um, I was having to think about the title for this session, and the title for it being Curating Culture, right? Um, and it's, it struck me as quite funny because creation has, creation in and of itself is quite funny. And I think that's because I've started to question that more with my own practice, and now we're working in a very strange and almost surreal world of curation, working with artist creators as well. But what does it mean to actually curate? And curate comes from the Latin root of cura, which has two kind of double meaning. It's to, it's, it's to, to care for, but also to cure. And so what does it mean to, to cure culture? What, do, what does that mean? And, and what is the role of a, a curator when we're talking about cultures, especially cultures of resistance, especially cultures of rebellion, especially and like subcultures? Um, and this, why I have this as my first slide, I like to do it like, pow, like shock everyone with this first slide, like burning buildings, boom, that's it, um, is because uh, growing up in London uh, at the time I did, in South London in particular, this is probably the most important image to me of that period. This was in the 2011 riots. This is Reeves Corner, if anyone knows Croydon, burning uh, to smithereens. And what, the first time I ever presented and I showed this picture, I was talking about placemaking not as a necessarily constructive act, not as an act that can be curated, not as an act that can be guided, but placemaking as an act that's deconstructive, placemaking as a sometimes destructive act. And what that reveals, what, how that interrogates systems and how that interrogates kind of overarching narratives, how that questions things and how that questions the status quo. Um, so one of the reasons the 2011 riots, other than the fact that I was in, there at the time, was important to me and also the important placemaking act in terms of deconstruction, is because it's very different from what it's often parted with, which is the 81 riots. Um, Oops, it's not going to click. Oh, there we go. So, the 1981 riots in Brixton uh, was a far more constructive placemaking act. The 2011 uh, riots didn't birth long-standing institutions like the Black Cultural Archives. It didn't birth institutions like the 1981, like 1981 Contemporary Gallery in Brixton either nor did it give birth to seminal kind of literary texts like the Squatter's Handbook and Race Today, nor did it give birth to really important seminal movements like the Organization for Women of African and Asian Descent and also the Black, Brixton Black Women's Group. In fact, it was so destructive, um, it re what it revealed was even a kind of lexical difference between this idea of what a, a riot and, and, and what looting is. Afterwards, a lot of the rhetoric behind it was that these weren't rioters, these had no kind of organization, there was no political moment. This was just looting, this was just people being opportunistic. And so, really what I'm in interested in is how placemaking acts, deconstructive ones, ones that create rifts, ones that reveal, and what that can tell us in an indicative way, how that informs how we negotiate change, how that informs 
how we change this, the fundamental nature of change itself and how we reappropriate those aspects of change. So a lot of my research is to do with temporary spaces while I was working with an organization called Public Practice. As an urban designer in Croydon Council, a lot of my research was to do with what the long-term effects of what we now term meanwhile space are um, and how that can have long-term effects, especially for different communities, for local communities. Um, I'm also interested in the problems of meanwhile space. I mean, in fact, I'm super interested in the problems of meanwhile space. And I often like to ask this idea, if meanwhile is the answer, then what's the question? If we're offering temporary inverted commas solutions or even interventions, what are those things answering? What questions are they answering? Um, a lot of my work, so I'm the co-founder of an organization called Resolve. We're an interdisciplinary design collective. We work at the interstices of uh, architecture, art, technology, and engineering. Um, a lot of our work is creating these temporary spaces. Most of our work has been temporary at, at thus far. And that's also been interesting, not because we've chosen that route, but because, uh, almost because we've been co coerced into, in, into, into that kind of route. A lot of our work uh, concerns building temporary structures, like the Brixton Pavilion and like the Rebel Space Pavilion in Brixton in 2016. Um, sometimes it's also working with kids. In fact, working with kids is a really similar part of what we do. Young people, as been discussed in the last panel, is a really integral part of how we build and shape our built environment and giving them voices, as they are kind of the main stakeholders and the longest-standing stakeholders in urban change, but have given their voices a really important part of us, of, of our kind of ethos and what we do. Um, we also do kind of short-term design interventions as well and, and engineering solutions. And a lot of the work is temporary, although recently we've been able to do something quite physical and quite, sorry, temp um, permanent, which is uh, the bridge in Brixton where we collaborated with the architect Fuka Guru, so that's up there now if anyone goes down to Brixton. Um, one project in particular which I think exemplifies this idea of how we can utilize or what the use of a kind of deconstructive placemaking act is and, and what that means for something like culture is one of the uh, projects that we did in 2017 called Passageway. Um, Passageway was a project where we tried to interrogate this idea of market value, not the idea of kind of the value of our houses and these kind of things, but like how, what is the value of urban markets today and what are those different and alternative values, environmental values, social values, political values, etc. Our one was based in Brixton Market, that's where we were based at the time, that's where, and that's where I'm from and my family history is very largely based around. And one of the things that we like to do during our projects, one of the kind of testament of it, is to use the site as a resource. There are lots of different reasons for how we use the site as a resource, but in this case, what we looked for is a kind of currency for the space. Like, how would we form and inform this space in such a way that could make a platform for different local entrepreneurs, local artists, and also providing this question of what urban value, of what urban markets, of the value of urban markets today. I've known Brixton Market my entire life. And uh, it was a surprise to me that I kind of resaw with new eyes, with fresh eyes, this idea of the banana boxes. And these banana boxes were absolutely everywhere. And they often acted not just as banana boxes, but in fact, they were never acting banana boxes. They were always holding things that weren't bananas. They were used as tables. They did a variety of different functions. And so we took about 300, 400 of these boxes and used them as an armature for the space in order to create and also create a platform for some of these different events. Within the space, we had a number of different events that were going on. We had workshops, we had food events where we worked with the kind of local food owners and also had like different collaborative events with young people interested in those kind of foods. Uh, we had uh, workshops, like I've said, and we also, it was a really important way of disrupting that space. And one thing that I don't talk about too well, but my brother, who's also one of the co-founders as well, talks about is how that space has created a rift. Prior to us being in the, in the space in Brixton, it was a, uh, a storage holder for Network Rail. 
Um, no, they were sitting on it and nothing was being done and the space was largely decrepit and nothing going on in it. We were able to create this rift in the space, which was a rift for different artists to be able to exhibit their work, the, uh, a space in which people, like this kind of culture, was able to be made. And this was an artist I really like, called Sholo Olulade, who prior to this had never kind of exhibited in somewhere like this before. Um, obviously, we had a number of different engagements, tons of different parties. I put too many party slides on this one. And also, but then the, the, the main crux of the, of the project was that it was completely temporary. And if you were to go there now, you wouldn't see any trace of it ever having existed. That's been a real worry to us, especially in that we're doing things that uh, are working with different communities and how those projects then live on is really important to us. This particular project lived on in the, in the space of a research project um, to, to do with tracing down the legacies of these banana boxes, how they kind of trace and speak to different colonial legacies, histories of um, labor and trade in the Caribbean in the early 20th century as well. And that's been published recently in the Architecture Review in a number of different places. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't even know what the, the next slide was even going to be. <laughs> um, let's see. Let's see what it is. Ah, okay. Uh, recently, we've been doing lots of things about people's mental and emotional responses to the cities. We were working in Sheffield to map different residences' responses to these cities and create uh, a platform within an art gallery which is otherwise inaccessible and create that kind of platform for different uh, community organizations. So creating those risks disrupting those status quo is something that we're really interested in, even when we're working with art. So a really interesting way of, and how we've been able to do that is also to make things tactile, to make things being able to grip, so that you can be able to loiter or, or kind of uh, exist in these art galleries without being too even you know, fussed with the art. Um, a few examples just as I end that are kind of these disruptive spaces that I'm really interested in how they kind of exist and how they've uh, persisted is um, one of them is the Loughborough Junction Farm, which is one of my favorite spaces in South London. That's my brother looking all happy. Um, and uh, the, the Loughborough Junction um, Farm is such an important community space for a variety of people in Loughborough Junction that would otherwise not have these spaces, that would otherwise not have a place to congregate during the day or to congregate during the, day, like during the weekday. And they come together around this idea of urban farming. So it's a very important space, so important that it Ah, I'm being given the tea. It's so important that it secured its own permanence. Um, I'll give two more examples. The, very, the, the penultimate one being Raum Labor's Floating University in Berlin. This was an incredibly important project that's been able to secure another year being there, and, and it's uh, just on the edge of Neukern. Um, and what they've done is create a kind of language, a lexicon around the situation in which they're in, in which how can practitioners deal with those states of precarity? How can they deal with those states of impermanence as well? And how can they make them productive? The very last one being the Croydon Art Store, and I sincerely, sincerely suggest everyone head their way down to Croydon immediately, right now, stop listening to me, <laughs> get down to the Art Store, because it is one of the greatest places in London. It's a space that really contradicts its setting. It's smack in the middle of um, the Wicker Centre, which is a beautiful 60s shopping mall in Croydon, and what it's really done is it's, it's, it's almost defined planet defied planning laws. It's the only space within a section, a, a completely commercial space in which there's nothing for sale. It's a place where you can go and, and kids and people with mental health issues and people who have nothing else to do, it, it captures a parameter or captures a type of demographic of person that would otherwise be left on a limb, without a limb. Um, and give them this space to congregate, give them this space to be productive, and give them space to kind of, even just to talk. Um, and that's one of the reasons I really loved and, and sorry, and then the very last thing, and why this is disruptive and constructive, um, is because what it really does is reveal the social nature of 
um, commercial spaces. Our shopping malls are often valued in, in kind of retail, they're often valued in this idea of exchange and transaction, but they do offer an incredibly important social space to kids. They offer social spaces to people who are without things to do during that day. And the Croydon Art Store really reveals that second nature to the Wicker Centre, one that I think is actually quite primary at the time. So to round off really quickly, uh, Temporary spaces do offer this opportunity to do the to, to rift, to create rifts in the status quo. The opportunities to reveal the secondary or the kind of hidden natures or pre-existing spaces. Um, but we have to problematize them. We have to understand how they can be, and we also have to understand the potential deconstructive and kind of disruptive nature of these spaces. And how do we work within that? Um, how do we give those space to breathe? Thank you. Okay, so I think I should finish. Um, so it's, it's sort of interesting when I got this invitation, you know, using placemaking, it's such a strange term, and I sort of likened it to, there's that scene in um, Spartacus, where there's a room where the Roman sort of general comes into a room, and there's everyone standing there, and he says, which of you is Spartacus? And everyone puts their hand up and says, I am Spartacus. And I think that's like placemaking. Everyone is a placemaker. And this term has become sort of broad term, landscape architects, architecture, Art consultants, branding consultants, you know, we keep, we're using this term, and it's a, a strange one, and it kind of goes everywhere. So I suppose from Future City's point of view, I set up in 2007. I guess we're just driven by kind of visual, well, mostly by visual culture. My, my previous background, we was a practicing artist for quite some time. I was a teacher in art schools for 20 years. And then I stumbled into the sort of property sector for a whole series of sort of accidental encounters and then started working with uh, architects, with landscape architects, with property developers. And it was a real, you know, it was another world. You know, the world I'm used to as an artist, as a, as a lecturer was, I, I, would, I would say predominantly a public sector owned cultural world. The language, the rewards, the funding applications, the accidental nature of what we've, we've, we do, scrabbling if you like for things. And sometimes that works and we have great work, but a lot of time it's quite difficult. And then suddenly there was this other world in which really major decisions were being made about uh, architecture, landscape, infrastructure, huge amounts of money being spent on, on the urban world. I, I also, I should say, I'm a Londoner. You know, I was very interested in how the decision-making worked. And what was kind of interesting, this is back in about 2007, was predominantly that the decision-making decision was kind of random, I felt, that there was lots of decisions being made that were almost based on a hunch, anti-research, uh, you know, friends who've done things before. So we kind of gradually pushed and pushed and pushed to see where, I guess, the clients would push back. And it's kind of interesting this week, um, four of our projects from around that period are all sort of there. So if uh, Illuminated River Project, will the bridges uh, along the Thames being lit by Leo Villarreal, was a, we, we won that project two years ago. The uh, Sculpture in the City, which I think is probably the, this year is the best one so far, comes from a strategy that we developed uh, a while ago, you know, nine years ago. Um, the Crossrail Culture Line, which is another big strategic piece of work, is going to come out quite soon. And then the uh, P5K, which is sort of elevated running track sculpture, uh, which is now called the Tide down at Greenwich Peninsula, was launched at the weekend. So some of the early big projects that we got involved in um, are now sort of just coming through. And it's, again, a sense of the different time 
profile, I suppose, of something that now has taken seven or eight years to become real. So uh, we, I'm going to show you, I thought as I finish, I would just try, and, we've got 10 minutes, I was just going to try and take you through one project where we've been very fortunate to be involved on and off for about four years. Um, and it's Wembley Park, and this is an enormous development, uh, Quintane development, 10,000 um, apartments, I think he's right, 10,000. Um, enormous, all happening at the same time, completely unusual, uh, where, where mostly these projects work in phases, they're peaceful, they, they move along sometimes through economic cycles. So when we started, um, we were kind of interested in a number of things. Firstly, we, we wanted to develop what we would call cultural-led placemaking strategy. We were interested in the public art component of that, and, we were being, and then more recently, we've, we've come in to sort of review the work that we did at the beginning. Now again, you know, the arts and cultural sector, we don't, we're not represented by anyone in the, in the way that architects or landscape architects or other building professionals have bodies and organizations. Culture is a broad church. Try and define it, try and define placemaking. So, you know, in a sense, you're pushing always the outsider, always trying to get into places. And I guess that's what I've always wanted to do, is get artists, cultural organizations, right to the front of the queue, get them in really early. Culture and the arts, as we've heard from numerous speakers, is increasingly the sort of dominant subject at the moment in terms of the, the sort of growth of the cultural city. So I was going to go through 10 things that we do, and, and I was going to be very practical about it. We've heard some great projects, and I'm, I'm not going to sort of get, get into detail on any, any individual one, but I, I thought I'd just talk about the sort of 10 things that we do. First thing is mapping. We're really interested in mapping. We do a sort of mapping based on um, uh, ground level research, demographics. We're interested in everything. What we want to do is to try and, try and create a picture of a place that's both emotional as well as based on, on if you like, on real research and data. The idea for this is we're trying to give this back into the, into the client team to say your decisions on your architecture and your landscape and so on should be made on the fact of where you are, what is near, and how you might involve or in, in, interconnect with them. The other thing is we work on schematic maps, uh, the tube map being a great example of a schematic map. If you look on the left, that's actually, uh, it looks the wrong way up to me because the Wembley is at the bottom of the map and Wembley Station is at the top on the left-hand side. But that's actually correct, the north is, is that way. We flipped it the other way to see it as you would experience it if you've done that procession from Wembley Park down the uh, Olympic Way to the stadium with the arch. You, you think of it as the head at the end of a spine. So we wanted to sort of create a sense of this as a place by challenging the way in which we perceive that space. What we then began to do is using the mapping, working on these kind of audits, working with the entire uh, design team, start to sort of challenge what these spaces were. So we started to create sub areas, if you like, uh, green areas, edge areas, downtown, a civic, so that we could sort of say, if you're in that area, you belong to that particular club. Your, your influence, your, the influence of that should influence some of your design and, and um, uh, your, some of your decisions. Number two is cultural assets. One thing we learn for, uh, as Future City is there's no money for culture if you ask for it. But if you smuggle those projects in, if you flip some of those budgets, if you raid some of the thinking that's there, then suddenly money does become available. So, for instance, the P5K running track is effectively a landscape project, elevated and becomes more sculptural. Then it becomes something else. But when we started, we're raiding, trying to think differently about the things that are there. So for us, cultural assets, the, the, the biggest cultural asset that we were able to convert 
was the, um, is the Olympic Way that we all know. When we started, it was a, an idea to upgrade the landscape, and that was the language, very dry, sensible, better pavers, better trees, maybe better seating, and so on. But now it's internally, it's, dis it's described as a cultural project. The lampposts have audio points, so there'll be sound waves able to run down the entire length of the Olympic Way. There are load-bearing points for heavy objects. The steps at the end of the, uh, of the Olympic Way will allow over 10,000 people to sit and face back down the Olympic Way. So what it means is we can program that space. We've taken that landscape concept, but we've kind of created a narrative around it which allows us to do you know, huge-scale, live, creative uh, uh, events, linked to the fact there will also be uh, major Wi-Fi access as well. So we're trying to convert the thinking into creative spaces where things can happen. So we're talking about cultural infrastructure. Third point, really, is cultural principles. When you work on these enormous projects, you've got 30, 40 people in a room. They very rarely meet. Everyone's going down the line where the architects are doing their thing, but there could be 15 different practices in, in, on a project. So what we're trying to do, I guess, is to create set a series of headers which start to allow us to kind of have big ideas that the groups can sort of coalesce around. So we, and all of this work comes from huge amounts of consultation and, and discussion, but we ended up with a kind of new London living. This was around the PRS scheme. This, we had sports and play, uh, the, the idea of live performance and events. Community, hugely important in Brent, in one of the most diverse boroughs in the country, and then education, training, and employability. So these were the five core uh, placemaking principles, if you like, that were supposed to drive all the thinking behind them. The fourth thing, really, with property developers, as you probably see, is that you know, they, they spend huge amounts of money on marketing and branding, and a lot of the time, it's kind of trying to sell it, they're telling themselves that they're good. They're using their own information to say, this is what we are, and what we want, fantastic, and if you don't believe us, look at our incredible marketing. But if you have great cultural content, if you have cultural partnerships from the outset, that content becomes extraordinary. There's so much of it. You don't need to exaggerate. You don't need to create uh, artificial ideas. You, it's all there. So cultural partnerships are, in this case, um, the uh, Quintain going in with Troubadour Theatre and creating a, a new theatre there as a sort of JV, as an investment in culture. Um, it's Box Park moving there. But it's not just Box Park does food. Box Park does extraordinary things. And if you look at the website, it's everything from you know, mega karaoke to uh, new types of food events to links to the football, the music. It's, it's the most extraordinary space and the most ambitious food through Box Park. And then affordable studios and creative spaces. And these, there are many more coming, and there's some exciting announcements to be coming in the, in the not-so-distant future. But what was, was exciting is because we managed to get in so early, because we could embed all this into the kind of day-to-day -day thinking, right the way across the kind of Quintain team, what we ended up with was them coming to us saying, we're doing this, could we do something with it? Almost the, getting the, the team to challenge their own, their own kind of um, disciplines. And, and similarly, uh, Wembley Park, the Getty Images has just arrived, and there's so many other things. Value system, this is really important because I mean, we have heard a lot today about developers should pay for this, developers should do that, developers should do this. And we, we also, I think we heard one discussion earlier about SILs and 106, and the, the way in which this, this money that's going from the developer into local authorities also forces up prices of the developer to get that money. So there's this very uneasy, very strange kind of relationship. But they will pay for things. They do want to invest in this, in culture and creativity. They need that language, and there needs to be much more collaboration. 
So the value systems could be anything from planning, could be rental, it could be community, it could be PR and marketing. There's a whole series of things which might be relevant to, um, to, to value, to, because we have the, it's a pri on, on most cases it's a private sector uh, partnership. Um, with vision and identity, um, and if, we, if you get the vision and identity right, again, it kind of feeds into the branding, it feeds into the content. And although, again, you know, some of the conversations we've had today, it might be that sort of crass to think of, of branding as being anything other than sort of um, puff and, and exaggeration, if you need that branding because it kind of starts to conjure and collate everything into one really great sort of um, area. Um, and in fact, what's been interesting with uh, the bandstand or the uh, branding people is the way they've taken that sort of cultural idea and sort of developed it through their branding and marketing material. So it's influenced a lot of their, their thinking. And then in terms of communities, the, the um, Brent has a nice incredible community. They've been hugely involved in this project. And the pavilion, which is now, it was the yellow pavilion, which was a temporary space, is now the permanent pavilion. And it's running the most extraordinary program of everything from you know, training, skills, participation, sports, health and well-being, linking into some of the big issues in the area, whether that's obesity or lack of skills, as well as the more sort of high-end things. So there's, this has become this extraordinary hub for the existing population who are moving into the, uh, coming into the area and the external community have now got this very urban uh, sort of central core inside Brent. And, you know, again, there's just some, there's a list of some of the things that are there. But what's been interesting now is that sense of community and, and involvement is going, spilling out from boxes that were designed for it into a whole series of other projects going into the public realm, into partnerships and so on. And increased just recently, the market which has opened, which is promoting young emerging design and craft talent. They've now got a vehicle for that. This has been done again as a sort of investment by Quintain. So just on that point, What's interesting for me now, looking at the sector, is that bigger developers are beginning to invest in their own cultural uh, content. And again, it could be problematic, but at least they're doing it. And it, then if you look at, say, what Quintain are doing, where they join quick JVs with theatres, offering commercial space up at lower rents or peppercorn rents, creating partnerships, they're looking at the long term. And that came up earlier, doesn't it? We need to invest in the long term, not the short term. Mark, I have to interrupt because yes. you, you have 20 slides I'm gonna, Okay, I'll flick very quickly to the end. <laughs> Let's jump to number 10. Temporary contemporary is what it is. It means do things from the outset. It means do events, keep things going. Don't wait for the long term. And then finally, the sort of creative districts. Some, these are some of the things that we talked about as, as Wembley Park as a destination and as a, as, a, as a coherent space. And one of the most, I guess, the powerful, oh, there's Claudia, who was appointed from the South Bank to bring some amazing content into, the, into Wembley Park. The big screen being the most recent. And so kind of raising the kind of level and the quality of the cultural offer. A new creative district for London. And then, I guess, this being the most important thing of all, plugging into Brent's ambition to be one of the London boroughs of culture, supporting that bid and being part of it. So I've done, I'm sorry, a very quick version of a kind of journey through. But I, you know, I, I think we've worked with a whole range of property developers over the last 10 years, good and bad. But for me, things are changing. We're living in an increasingly urban, complex, collaborative world. And there is a different kind of conversation going on. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet.
I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.